Next Chapter Podcasts. Welcome again to How I Got Greenlit. For Alex Collegian, I'm Ryan Gibson. Today is part one of our conversation with creator, developer, and television executive, friend of the show, Eli Holzman. Today, Eli finds himself as the nonfiction president at Sony Pictures Television. His past hits include Project Runway and Very Close to Our Hearts, Project Greenlight. Eli is a trove of knowledge. We hope you enjoy our conversation. A real quick shout out to those who've reached out. We appreciate the feedback and love. Andrew M. Chafkin, Instagram name Al Chaffee, E-L underscore C-H-A-F-F-Y. Thank you. The fellows over at Simpleton Cinema, Instagram handle Simpleton Cinema. Thank you as well. And Slept on Cinema, which their handle is Slept on Cinema. They were nice enough to have Alex and I on their show last week. Please remember to join us at How I Got Greenlit on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and HowIGotGreenlit.com. Without further ado, Eli Holtzman. Hi, and welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. I'm Alex Collegian, joined by my co-host, Ryan Gibson. Hi, everybody. And we're here joined by a very special guest as part of our uh, uh, our ramp up to the re... Eli, is this the re-re-reboot of Project Greenlight this summer? Or the re-reboot, yeah. Yes. And uh, ne- can, never, can never die. Uh, coming back July 13th, now on Max, or soon to be on Max... I'm talking to uh, my co-creator, my co-developer, co-producer, co-parent of Project Greenlight. And Eli went on to much uh, greater acclaim with creating shows like Project Runway, uh, I believe co-creating or creating shows like Undercover Boss, executive produced, produced, created, developed, oh, let's say... uh, 50 uh, internationally acclaimed formats, uh, multi Emmy Award winner, multi Emmy Award uh, 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 nominee, uh, recently the Lifetime Achievement at the, at, at the uh, real screen. Uh, did we forget anything else? Dog catcher of the month? What, what, what else? What, yeah, what else? Maddie Catching Dogs. I didn't create um, Undercover Boss, Proud Father of Two Kids. And my track record of nominations to wins on the Emmy side is abysmal. So, <laughs> the Susan Lucci of Emmys, a lot of nominations. Susan Very- Lucci, what a pull. Boy, it's going to be that kind of episode. Holy shit. And by the way, Eli brought for us one of my favorites. What a great choice. The Player, Robert Altman's The Player. And Eli... Um, you know, 92, I, my very first job in Hollywood was 19, uh, what was it? 99, I want to say. I had an internship and that is exactly what Hollywood looked like. The big shoulder pads, the goofy baggy suits, uh, the fucking just like another world, man. But you know, what's funny about it and we'll get into it later is like watching that film, um, it's just the window dressing that's changed. The phone is ironically huge, right? Bruce, uh, uh, Burt Reynolds' phone, the power move of putting the gray brick on the on the table at Jeffrey's. Uh, but everything else is the same. You know, the douchey executive drives the fucking Range Rover, and they all sit around like, hey, we're educated people. We should talk about other stuff beyond Hollywood. Ha, 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 right? So, like, it really hasn't changed that much. It's just the fashions and the hairstyles and, and whatever. But culturally, it's pretty much the same. Although... I'd say, you know, Eli, we've been doing this a while, but I'd say in the last five to seven years, the sort of Me Too and as the younger generation gets older. Oh, my God. Technology. Hey, hey, hey. Shut it down, talkie. Let the (laughs) guests talk. For Christ's sake. I was ramping up. I was ramping up. Yeah, you ramped for 10 minutes. (laughs) Anyway, welcome, Eli Holtzman. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, thanks, Eli. Nice to meet you, Ryan. So I... Uh, oh my God! We're going. Are tell we going me, again? no, 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 no. Tell me that. <laughs> tell me the name of the sushi place you took me in the valley. Sushi Nazawa. Sushi Nazawa, the great, the the you know the sort of the, that, that's the uh, you know that's the progenitor to um to Sugarfish, one of his one of Master Sushi Chef Nazawa's um uh, devoted customers, like 
convinced him to open a chain restaurant. And that's what Sugarfish and Kazunori came. That's where those two came from. I love Kazunori now. I go to the I go to the Marina one all the time. Me too. And those are, that's his style of role. And he used to hand them right to you at the bar there. That's right. That's right. Trust me. I remember that sign on the wall. Yeah. Blue crab hand roll. Great. Blue crab hand exactly. roll. That's how it all begins. And and it was just in a little strip mall. No no pomp and circumstance. I think it was a dry next to a dry cleaner or something, right? Um, that's where we hatched Project Greenlight, um, in a kind of by the way conversation, you know, I said, uh, we, we were talking about, um, I had met Eli at a party. Uh, he had just moved out like a week before or something. And, uh, we, he was going to do clerks, the animated TV show for Kevin Smith. And that was the first, I think it was your first Miramax TV was the newly launched Miramax TV. And Eli had uh, moved from New York to run it, uh, for, uh, Billy Campbell, who we want to talk about in a little while. Um, and, uh, we were two young guys on the make. He was trying to make it on the inside. I was trying to make it on the outside. And, uh, I was pitching him on trying to do the animated show. I had done Disney animation. I knew how to do, I had some overseas connections to Indian and, you know, South Korean animation studios and such. And that was sort of the meaning of the lunch. And after we talked about that stuff, we were just bullshitting, getting to know each other. And he was like, oh, what are you working on? I said, I've been, you know, I've been watching this show, The Real World. And, you know, everybody, my, my wife loves it. Everybody loves it, but they don't do anything. Like, why don't they do something? Why don't they like... I don't know, a project, build a house or make a movie or something. And Eli's like, what? what? Tell me more about that. I don't give a shit about that animation. Tell me more about that. You know? And, and then we, uh, he told Billy and then I came in and we pitched Billy and Billy was like, I love it, but no one knows who the fuck you guys are. Go find, go find a star, you know? And, uh, you know, tell, tell me about, um, and we'll get into, you know, your sort of origin story or whatever, but, uh, you know, tell me about, uh, the, the, where your head was at. Cause you're such a quintessential New Yorker. When you moved to LA, like what was that like that, that, you know, summer or whenever you moved here? So I used to come out, I started coming out here, I think March of 97. Um, uh, well, I was working at Miramax and I, and I would come out for work. And I remember when I first got to LA, um, I took a look around and I was like low slung buildings, wide boulevards. It's like Queens. I get it. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, and, uh, and I remember everything seemed to move really slow. The people on the checkout line were talking to each other instead of just fucking bagging their shit and getting out of the way. And, right. and as a New Yorker, that pace was really grating. And now I've come to really appreciate that we're interested in how the checkout person is doing. We might, <laughs> we might stop and chat and it's actually lovely, um, but not at that time. And, uh, yeah, I'd moved out, uh, I'd gotten, um, sent out here to start Miramax's TV business and, um, didn't know much about TV, didn't know what to expect. Um, and yeah, that was my, you and I met my best friend's big sister, um, uh, was a school teacher and your, your then wife was a school teacher and we were sat next to each other at, 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 at that dinner party, um, my best friend from Bronx Science High School said back when we were 16 years old that he was going to be a director. And I said, well, then I'll be a producer. And that's how I chose this career path. I, you know, I did a little bit more while, you know, sort of like refining uh, along the way. But that was the original bit of it. And that school teacher's brother is lives a mile from here. Uh, he wrote Prey, the, 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 the Predator sequel. That was a hit on Hulu this year. And he's writing blockbusters. And both of us... Uh, made it out here and are doing it, which is, I think, really, really cool. Um, so yeah, when I first got out here, it was, it was just figure it out and go to work. Um, Miramax had all had overall deals with Kevin Smith and Kevin Williamson, and each of them had a series set up at ABC. Kevin Williamson had Wasteland and, uh, Kevin Williamson, uh, wrote Scream was his original. Yep, sorry. exactly. And he had, uh, and Dawson's Creek at the time was a hit for him. So, uh, yep. and, um, and I remember when I got out here, I asked a friend of mine who'd come out to become a sitcom writer who had just gotten a job on the bright Kaufman crane show, um, uh, Becker. Uh, and so that, that's the team that did friends and she would ultimately go on to write the final season of friends. But I said, so how does it work? Like, what's the deal? And she kind of summarized it as like, we write the script in the writer's room, the idiots at the studio give us their stupid notes. And then we rewrite and send it to the idiots at the network who give us their stupid notes. And that, 
and I, I had never thought of myself this way because I, I thought of, uh, you know, what we did at Miramax as being really additive, but I was like, oh my God, I'm the idiots at the studio. And I went to um, Kevin Williamson's partner at the time, was a woman named Julie Plack, who's the big showrunner now on her own, the Vampire Diaries is, is her hit show. And I went to Julie and I said, you know, Julie, my friend just explained how it works and I'm the idiot at the studio. And I, I have no idea how to make a TV show and you guys have Dawson's Creek on the air. I don't want to be an obstacle to you. Tell me how I can be helpful and put me to work. And if I, and otherwise I'm just going to stay out of your way. And she was like, ah, oh, thank you. Can you help staff the show? Can you like, I, I, we're drowning in submissions. We have so much to do. Can you just read the scripts and figure out, you know, who's good. And so that was the very first thing I was doing. Um, uh, and apart from, and what's amazing about the, the, your setup there, Alex is I think it's probably the first time in Hollywood history that two people, a decades later, have the same memory of the origin of a successful show. Uh, yeah, well, like, that <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good point. Selective memory in Hollywood. That's chapter eight. We'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I remember being hustled by this guy being like, you don't want to use film Roman for your giant ABC animated series order. Exactly. I know a guy. I'll take yeah. care of it for you. <laughs> That's exactly right. I was selling schmatas back then. Um, yeah, it, it, Ryan, it really was like that. The second that I, I heard Miramax TV, I just cornered the poor guy and wouldn't let him go. Well, you know, it's just typical of Alex. Uh, typical of Alex. I mean, you have told me that story several times before, and it it seems now the truth is in the you know. <laughs> and you didn't believe it till it was corroborating. Uh, yeah. No, what I what I didn't. I just no. I I believe you. It's just funny how I think you you kind of glance over the fact that what you originally had pitched him, and this is for all the this is for all the listeners out there, what you had originally gone in the room to pitch him. Uh, he was like, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> but you, you salvaged it. Right. So, I mean, clearly it was a, well, it was a, Eli, it was a great Eli, you're the pitcher extraordinary. I mean, just so everybody knows, like the, the, the town, it's funny, Eli, like you, you were the one who first used that term. And I, I always quote you. I probably quote you once a week because you said something really smart. You see a lot of things smart, but you said, uh, we were talking about somebody like making it big and you said, well, look, you know, the town has to be rooting for you. And funnily enough that you said that a long time ago, but it's really a true statement, meaning like there's so many things that have to come into alignment, even for our little story about Project Greenlight and movie stars coming on and blah, blah, blah. But it, it and God, God, you know, God knows that Harvey Weinstein sort of like played out that for sure. Right. You know, the notion that he was successful, all of us hit a, an eddy, right. We, the, the, the wind falls out of the sails. We're stuck in the Sargasso sea. I mean, fucking Frank Sinatra had a 10 year, you know, wandering moment, Elvis Presley, the biggest stars you'd ever know. But when you make friends and when you keep friends and when you conduct yourself like a gentleman or a woman or a lady or a, just a, a professional, when you do hit those eddies and those the, the the wind falls out of your sails, there are people there ready to give you a job or ready to give you um, a helping hand because they're rooting, as you say, they're rooting for you, right? So um, it seems like you're a pitch master. You know, many people, your reputation in the town is at like sort of a one of the best pitchers ever, right? So, you know, that happens. You get in the room. I, it, I always go back to Glenn Gary again, Ron. When you're on a sit, okay, you know, it's like a yeah. sit, right? Have you been in a pitch and you know there's no way this person, they, you know, they say something in a side like, you're about to pitch a game show and they're like, if I see another fucking game show pitch, I'm going to jump out that window. And you're like, well, that's good because I didn't bring that. <laughs> like, have you had to pivot in a pitch? Always. Constantly. Always. Oh, constantly. Um, the, uh, um, reading the room and then you also have to have the courage of your convictions if you believe in a show and you believe in what you're pitching and, it, and it's good sometimes your job is to convince them that they're wrong or say right. and, and that's a little bit more my style um which is like I, I pitch things that i um believe in and right if it's not right for them that's okay like that's cool you don't like my amazing thing cool I'll, maybe it's for somebody else it's not for you I, it's not i don't not believe in it anymore because you don't like it. It's not either you don't have the right taste or you, your audience isn't the right audience. And that's fine. It, that there, there's all different, um, 
pitching styles. That's a little bit more mine. My partner, my business partner, Aaron Sedman, he loves turning it around. And he almost prefers that they are negative so that he can have the joy. He can win them back. back and turning it back into a sale. But yeah, yeah, pitching something completely different, knowing, understanding who the who your buyer is. And if, yeah, if you've if miscalibrated, you know, coming off of that, reacting, like, or figuring out how to, how to change the show, can it be changed? Could it be different? Is there a way to, okay, they, you know, not live, live doesn't work anymore. It's got to be live. Okay. Not, not competition, arcing, not standalones. Okay. You know, like, sure. Like, can it be done? And maybe it can, and maybe it can't. Um, and that's, uh, and within that, you're conveying, like, am I a hack that's willing to do anything? Because then they might not trust you. My very first pitch ever, I think, in, in, in Hollywood was we got sent, um, I shall leave all the names out of this one, but we got sent into the head of the department at the big network with a particular idea. And he basically said, it's not quite right. It needs to change a little bit. And we said, well, it's actually, it's really modular. It's built in these segments. So it's really easy to adjust the blend. We, you know, yeah, we can do that. And he said, but I want to buy things from people that really believe in their vision and, and have a sense of that, what it needs to be. And we said, so if you're willing to change it, you know, I don't know. And we said, well, well, yeah, no, we do have a really firm sense of what it should be. That's the version that we're pitching you. And I walked out of there and I turned to Billy, my boss, and I was like, what the fuck was that? He just said it has to change or he wouldn't buy it. But if we're willing to change it, he wouldn't buy it. <laughs> what was that? And he said, oh, yeah, let me explain to you. We're in there because our boss convinced his boss to buy it. And if he now says yes and it doesn't work, it's his fault. But if he says no and his boss overrules him, then if it doesn't work, he's inoculated. But if it does work, he's still going to get the credit because it's his department. And I was like, I don't even know if I can understand that, like the double talk, but like, okay. And I think they did buy it. We did make, we, we made, we made the pilot of it. Um, but there's a, uh, yeah, there's some, like, there's some, you can't just be willing to take any note and, you know, throw, you know, cause at some point you look like you're Willie Loman. You have to believe you. Cause a big part, I think, especially in, nonfiction, but a big part of what we're, when you're pitching is you got to believe that we're going to go execute it really well. So it's not just, you know, what's the idea, but whose idea is it? You got to believe that we know how to make it. Um, and that's part of the art of the pitch too. Um, by the way, to go all the way back to give credit where it's due about the town rooting for you. I learned that from Richard Weitz who now runs a WME. Uh, he was Ashton, one of, he was on Ashton Kutcher's account and I worked at Ashton Kutcher's company for a year. And at the end of the year, when I was leaving, I went and saw Richard and asked him what I could have done better. And he said, um, you didn't get the agency rooting for you. And I remember I would go to the to WME once in a while and I'd see what looked to me like kind of thirsty producers going down the halls and back slapping people. And I thought like, those guys look pathetic. They're so like hungry to get these guys liking them. I'm never going to be like that. But here was Richard explaining like, hey, man, we got... In this building, everybody goes to lunch every day with all the buyers in town. And if they're, if we're psyched about you, we're going to bring you up and we're going to, you know, you know, sort of like tout you. But that's because we, you know, that's because the building believes in you and you need to, you need to like nurture that. And I'd never done on me before. And so I'm sort of living proof of, uh, you can do it wrong, learn, improve, adjust and come out the other side. And, and maybe Ryan, that's the point you were making about, about pitches and being willing to pivot the pitch. Well, I think, um, look, I, I love the fact that you, you know, I think everybody, and that's kind of a theme of the show, an underlying theme of the show is that you can learn from your mistakes and it's hard enough anyway to, to get anything off the ground and to get people behind you. So just, crumpling it up and throwing in the corner and throwing your hands up and quitting. You just have to understand there's a right place and a right time. And you have to learn from every experience. And the town is small. Uh, this industry is small and people know everybody and you need to treat everyone with some, with dignity and respect. I think, especially, I think things were different, but you never know when someone could, you know, yeah, you Eli, why don't you throw more ashtrays? I miss that old, the old era. Yeah. Scott Root. We had, we had, our buddy was uh, used to work for Scott Root. And so, you know, we, we try to, we try to 
educate the new generation about all the fun they missed, you know, 20, 30 years ago when uh, the behavior was was bad. Oh, I've seen people. Yeah, people have thrown phones. I've seen I mean, we've all seen it. But, you know, um, you know, I just want to go back because you said something uh, really interesting earlier in your it sounded like in your teen years, your formative teen years, your I guess your maybe was your best friend or a friend of yours said he wanted to be a director and now has gone on. And you said you wanted to be a producer. Did you know what that was when he said that? Were you like, well, what does that mean? I did. I, I knew. I knew. I had a sense of it. You know. Yeah. I just. You know. You kind of knew what a Hollywood director was. I was. But. Uh, but not. You know. I probably didn't really know what it was. Now, did were you guys? Did you guys like get out? You know, uh, the VHS and do. Were you guys doing things? <laughs> together before that you or film nerds like, yeah, when, like when did when did film and tv and hollywood let's say just in macro like kid in bronx high you had to be smart that's a good school right it's a magnet school you have to get in on your grades right you do i'm like sort of like bottom cohort exception to the rule i graduated with a 74 average but they did just have me back to be the commencement speaker so <laughs> <laughs> but but so you're i mean you can't just be sitting around and going like you're like instead of uh, you know i want to drive a truck for a living there had to be some build up to that so what was the build up to did you have a love uh, like initial love of going to the movies or television or did your dad take you Did you know, also what was all that? those things. And I'd say in not, there it was not so much one as like a braid of different things. So I love um, stories. It was hard for me to learn to read and I had to get special tutoring. And as a result, reading to me felt like a, like a treasure. And uh, whether it was like Tintin comics or um, nice, yeah, bought a big box over there that I'm unpacking now. My old Hardy Boy books, like I love, I, I could, I, I would love to read. And we grew up, I grew up with no TV, so going there was going to the movies or reading. And I, I really treasured stories and storytelling. And to hear my mom tell it, who now with like hindsight, you know, had, had totally sees how my life was shaping up from the beginning. I was like unbearable and I would endlessly <laughs> bend her ear and tell stories. Um, so that's, that was one thing. My dad was a Broadway stage actor, you know, before I was born. Wow. So there was some bit of like, wow. you know, um, he was a show, he was a showman. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah. And he, and he, and he loved that. And he, you know, he, he, you know, knew all the show tunes and was sort of was very, he studied with Sandy Meisner. He was like a, you know, proper actor his um for 10 years he was married to my stepmother you know when i was like you know i think from like eight to 18 and uh her name is victoria fairbanks and her her dad was douglas fairbanks jr so you know big wow and i got to spend time with him and got saw his movies and learned this kid and his life was extraordinary wait you hung out with douglas fairbanks jr and saw his movies with him yep and he was, you know, he was a battleship commander in World War II. And he talked, he's like, yeah. oh, the Nazis were this close to having the nuclear bomb ahead of us. But Dickie Montbatten's commandos went into Burma and blew up the facility. And like, he had just the most amazing stories. Apparently, like, Dickie. when Lugosi died, they, 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 like, the Hollywood sort of film colony kidnapped his coffin and went through, like, a wild weekend-long rager with Bella's body. Uh, and so like, you know, there are just these amazing stories. So I got exposed to that, you know, this sense of this place called Hollywood, this sort of mythical place. Um, and that's a, that's a fan. Those, those are two back. That was back to back. Fantastic. I've known you for decades and decades and I never heard either of those stories. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Those are, those are, those are really, those are really, really cool. And I think gave me, uh, and so my first love of Hollywood is with this, um, Art Deco, Roaring Twenties, Thirties, Forties era. Um, yeah. that I, that I, the sun, that the Sunset Tower. Yeah, and 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 you know my screen name for a long time was Monroe Star. That's the last tycoon. I remember you that. Know, that, yeah. that Scott Fitzgerald. S T A H R, a western. Yeah, and so that that was one part of it. I used to stay up late at night as like when I was about thirteen. I don't know why, but I couldn't fall asleep because I thought if only I knew what I wanted to do, I could get started. And um, <laughs> I ultimately picked architecture. And I, in, re- in retrospect, I think that's because it was a mix of um, art and craft. My dad had gone left acting and become a cabinet maker. And I spent time um, in his business and I thought the architects were cool. And um, 
And, and that was another sort of influence. And I realize now I'm left brain, right brain. And I like a little bit of art craft. And then later I, I added business to that. Another impression I got was working for my dad. I would install cabinets. Really, I would carry them into job sites. And he built the offices for a lot of ad agencies. So he built the office for Amirati and Purist. And uh, I think Ralph Amirati coined BMW the ultimate driving machine. You know, these were ad men. And I came across, you know, like 15 or 14 years old, um, Ad Age magazine. And I got exposed to that. It was around that time. Damn it, I'm going to forget the name of this movie. We could probably Google it. But it's, it's Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason. And Tom Hanks is an ad executive, like, um, and it's his relationship with his his, his dying father. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And she's, you know, pencils and linoleum and being a creative executive. And so this idea of guys that you know, you know, on yuppies that wore suits but were creative, but with an idea could change the meeting was sort of incepted for me at that time. Um, nothing in common. Maybe? Nothing, nothing in common. In yeah, common. that's the one. So that was another kind of like seeing ad age, seeing um, Emirati and Paris and those that, those offices, um, all that. You know, those those things kind of got baked in. We had a a, um, a family friend, uh, Jeffrey Metzner, who had a big big um, uh, uh, big bunch of kids that I went to school with. His son Raven became a really successful screenwriter. Um, but he ran an ad agency and was a really cool guy. And I was like, look at that cool guy with great taste. And um, that was another impression. And uh, But in high school, Patrick made that suggestion. I thought, yeah, that sounds cool. I like the idea of, of, that, of that job, being a producer. That sounds like kind of up my alley. And um, my father's old actor buddy, uh, Lloyd Batista, who would do things like play the heavy on Mission Impossible, uh, gave me advice. He was still acting. And he said, well, the producer comes up with the money. So you got to be rich. So you either own like a string of Subaru dealerships, or you can put together like a syndicate of dentists to raise the dry money. cleaners. Yeah. yeah. I didn't, we weren't rich, but it was the eighties. And I thought, well, I'll go to wall street and make the money I need to make to finance Patrick's to get to the movies. <laughs> yeah. And it was as silly as that, but I started studying finance and um, luckily I came across um, Julia Phillips' book, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again. And I read that. And then Lawson's book, A Pound of Flesh. And those were two producer biographies that you can you can tease out a career path from. Uh, you get a job, maybe as an assistant to become a junior executive. You're working in the studio to learn what the studio likes and buys and how it all works and make the relationships to eventually go out on your own and do it as an independent producer. That's what both of them did. And, um, and through that, I started reading uh, Weekly Variety, uh, SUNY Binghamton, where I went to college. I had a, a subscription to that. And as I read more biographies, I started to realize that um, I had a sort of big moment where it sort of hit me as like a bolt out of the blue. I had gone to a very artsy uh, elementary school. And as a result, like I'm, I can draw and I have good colored pencils and on Valentine's Day, I was drawing a card for my girlfriend and my buddy in the dorm, who was this accounting virtuoso that I would study with on the, for accounting, which I struggled with, um, was drawing. He was like, oh, I'll draw a card, too. And I looked over at his card. His card sucked. And my card was good. And, it, and, it, and in that moment, I was like, his card sucks because he's an accountant. And your card is good because you're not. Because you're not an accountant. Yeah. And, you're like, and I was like, oh, I'm in the wrong place right now. I should not be studying finance at City Binghamton. And when I went home at Thanksgiving, my mom was like, oh, you should talk to Nancy Larson. She's a screenwriter. And Nancy was like, oh, if you're really interested in the business, maybe I can help you out. Call me if you're serious. And I did. And she said, well, you should intern. I'd never heard of interning. And she helped me get uh, an internship at, uh, at Miramax, an interview for an internship for the new head of production who had just relocated, Paul Webster, um, from Los Angeles to New York. And, uh, and that was how I kind of, that's how I got my start. That was, uh, Christmas of 95 and they offered me a, a job about a month later. And I went to work at Miramax in January of 96. And they were in Tribeca. They were on top. They were, you were joining like the biggest thing and just since sliced bread. Yeah. This was, you know, Pulp Fiction had just come out. 
they were going yeah ninety five. I I peg ninety five as the modern as the beginning of this era we're still in, which is like I think Heat came out, Pulp Fiction came out. It just it kind of cemented like the modern era for us, right? That 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 we were lucky enough that because that's when I that's when I started too is ninety five. I I moved out here from NYU Film School, so it it, it just was a magical time because. You mean uh, you know the old joke like decades only start like five years in, right? Uh-huh. And I feel like '95 was the beginning of the '90s. You know, uh, Clinton was in, the economy was booming, um, but art was interesting, and Miramax was a big part of that. We're going to take a break from our conversation with Eli Holzman, and we're going to revisit an episode that we did with Sophia Sondervan in this clip. She talks about how this new generation approaches filmmaking. Take it away, Sophia. Nowadays, I think it's so much easier to make a film. So film is just so much more accessible to everyone because we don't have to buy this expensive film stock. We don't have to buy all those supplies. And so I think when students enter the film school, they're already so much more prepared because a lot of them have been making films in high school, even as small kids. They're just so much more aware of what visual media is and what it looks like, what works, what doesn't work. They're just much, much, much more savvy than we were, I think, because we just had these sort of art movies that were made by different directors that we were following. And that was like our our lesson material, you know. But I think the modern, students haven't really watched those they're not watching the same movies that we were watching you know they're they well, are they watching are they watching and, tiktok well, are they watching are, like are they influenced by their social media which is primarily what they're making visually i'd say they're more influenced by things like you know marvel and dc comics and, and the, the big budget you know sequels prequels franchise movies huh. they're pop culture yeah yeah Make sure you go back and listen to this and all the vaulted episodes of How I Got Greenlit. Now back to Eli. It seems like your your uh, your life story is about listening and gleaning and learning from other people and sort of keeping keeping the gems and keep moving on. Right. So like that moment you had that, it's almost like a screenplay moment. I can, I can see your pitching acumen and your, and your anecdote telling, you know, we're there with you and it's that visual. You don't even need words. You just look at the two cards and you go, I'm not an accountant. Cut to, you know, Miramax intern interview. What do you, what do you got that tells me you should be making movies? You got what it takes, you know? So um, yeah. So, I mean, you were, you were Harvey's assistant, boom, you know, you had to manage that person and try to learn from them and, and, you know, come out alive. So, uh, what, what was your Miramax experience? Like, I bet, it, I bet it started out like my favorite year, right? You know, you're strolling along and you're going to the big office and movie posters on the wall, right? It was sort of a, did you feel at home? Like, oh shit, this is the right choice. I, I, I didn't belong there. I belong here. Yeah. I never looked back. I, I loved it. You know, I, as an intern, they said, come in two days a week. I came in five days a week. They said, uh, get in at 11. I made sure I was the first one in in the morning. They said, you know, you can leave at five. I made sure I was the last one to leave. And I don't ever remember deciding to do that, but I did it. And I did that all through being an assistant. And as an assistant, because it was a hardworking place at 8, at 8 PM, everybody was still at their station at Miramax. It, we, it was a grindy, hard charging place. Wow. Um, so I'd have to stay till, you know, 11, 12, 1 a.m. to be the last one out. And I did that every day. So no one told you that and you didn't sit down and write out a Ben Franklin, how I'm going to be a better worker thing. You just did it. No, my dad had said to me as a like irritated criticism when I used to work for him, I would fuck off and like, you know, make like weed pipes at his shop. And he'd say like, what are you doing? And I'd say like, well, there's nothing to do. And he'd say, well, if there's nothing to do, pick up a broom and sweep the floor. Yeah. Right. I'd roll my Found eyes. Something. It's a giant woodworking factory. There's nothing but dust all over the floors and they're woodworking. <laughs> but I did that at a bike store. My first, like one of my first jobs was working at a bike shop. And when there was nothing to do, I would reorganize the shelves or sweep the floor and it made a real impression. 
And so taking, I took, I definitely took that spirit with me to, to Miramax and would always busy myself and never just sit around. Um, so that, that, you know, that, that, that comes from my dad, but no, I, I love Miramax. It was amazing early, early on. Uh, and there were so many cool things, but I got sent, I got called by my boss, my first boss after being an intern, uh, I became, uh, was an assistant a month later for a guy named Scott Greenstein, who now runs Sirius uh, XM radio. Um, at that time they called him the third wine. So he was the head um, deal maker. Uh, and he <laughs> called me up. I had to bring something to him in Robert De Niro's office. Cause Miramax was in the Tribeca film center. And then the top floor was De Niro's office. And uh, I was called to bring something up there. I assume a deal. And it was Harvey and Robert De Niro and my boss, Scott Greenstein, and walking into Robert De Niro's office. And he had color stills uh, from Raging Bull on the walls. So I guess Raging Bull was shot in color. And then they took it to black. Wow. And so wow. he had color stills. And, I, and I, I, you know, and that's one of my favorite films. And it's Robert De Niro. And I was just starstruck and... Um, it was so cool and they could see on my face what a big deal it was. And they were, they were getting a kick out of that because they knew how magical it was, even though it was just their day to day. Um, so yeah, it was, it was amazing. And you know, I mean, the first scripts I took home out of the script closet, Miramax didn't develop much then. It was an acquisitions and marketing, you know, distribution company. And it was just getting into the Pulp Fiction was one of the first movies that put money into uh, did the same with um, the English patient. So there was a script closet. There were probably only 25, 30 scripts in there, but uh, Scream was one of the scripts in there. And Good Will Hunting was one of the scripts in there. And the Cider House Rules. These are like the first scripts I ever read. I think Scream's the first one I ever read. Um, and um, so, it, yeah, it was magical. And I love to, as someone who likes to work hard and be busy, there was an endless amount of work. And uh and I, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. And I, and I loved my experience there. Um, the, the, it, 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 now we know about some of the worst things that were happening. Um, outside of that, which I think most people didn't, didn't know about, it was also like, yeah, those guys are mean and they're tough and they were not... Um, They didn't go to work thinking, how can I hook people up? How can I help grow, you know, grow my team and grow people's careers? It was, I'm going to take as much from everybody around me as I, as humanly possible. And if you happen to be able to succeed while I'm doing that. No. Can you help me be as rapacious as possible? Yeah. I mean, like Harvey's story of Project Runway, which I created, and I'll tell you all about how I created it, is that Harvey created it. Yeah. Like, here's a guy, he's this multimillionaire with won all these Academy Awards. He's got to take credit for the, like, the one thing I did. And yeah, he did. And they, they, um, and the only time they ever gave a shit about the fact that I did that was they had some frivolous lawsuit where a woman claimed that she was ripped off for the idea. And they were like, Hey, could you come actually defend this lawsuit and help us win it and pull out your old memos where you, where, which document you creating the show? I'm like, Oh, so now it's okay that I created the show just in this room for the litigation. And then we can go back to the other fiction. So like those guys, they're not yeah. nice guys. They weren't, but I, yeah. It, and I didn't build my house there. You know, I, I never, you know, as you know, I never made a nickel from project runway or project Greenlight. but I did, but I got to learn my trade there and I got extraordinary training. You built your foundation, but not your house. Yeah. Yes. It was, I, I, I loved it. I loved my experience there. I got an extraordinary education and uh, you know I got to be like, kind of like a bat boy for the Yankees and it was amazing and and Meryl Poster was your boss Meryl was one of, of my bosses she yeah. was the head of production um, mm -hmm. yeah yeah there were you know there uh, I, I worked for a lot of different people at that company so um, when did you meet Billy Campbell he was hired to start the division and you were sort of in on those phone calls of like hey we should get into TV like what, what was the pivot for Miramax to say hey we should start a TV division was that your influence I like what? I don't deserve that credit um, I had been fired slash promoted and I was kind of banished <laughs> as a junior film executive to a kind of nothing role which really broke my heart. It was another good piece of my education. But I, I, and I spent nine months as like this, like extraordinary, 
extraordinarily high horsepower person with no responsibilities, essentially kind of twiddling my thumbs. And, um, and around that, and, and I wrote So you a, started making weed pipes in the office? I did not do that. I wrote a memo to Merrill that said, here are the four areas. I've interviewed all the senior management here where we should grow and things I could do. And one of them was mm-hmm. start a television division. And I'll go do that. So you didn't, you didn't have a lathe in your office? Is what I did you're not have a <laughs> No drill press, no bandsaw. Um, Why does he have a lathe in his office? Oh, he makes weed pipes on the side. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, by the way, I didn't smoke weed then. I like was like, and I, and I was like, I didn't even talk about it. Like if a friend of mine mentioned a joint, I was like, dude, I'm here to like be perfect. Do not ever talk about any imperfection whatsoever, which is very naive considering, you know, how some of the other people were living at that time. But I was trying to be very buttoned up and get straight A's. Um, And and by the way, that's an interesting, uh, you know, kind of nod to the olden days as well. Like it was a different community. People partied harder. They drank a lot. They did other stuff. It was... uh, I mean, I never saw the cocaine on the desk, but I certainly saw the residue later. You know, like it, it was a real thing. It was a different culture. I think America was a different country. I think the world was a different world, but definitely in entertainment, there was the the residual. It was more permissive. It wasn't as corporate. And so like, you know, like that's me too. And, but that's a head down thing, right? Those two, as you said, they saw themselves as fucking pirates. So even though the company kept growing and growing with people like you, they did get really talented people extraordinarily extraordinarily talented ones and it was and in my education there i found myself wondering like these guys rule by fear is that the only way to do it is that the only way extraordinary performance out of people by being uh, you know ogres they would they had had no qualms about saying like yeah mr kid's birthday party get in here we're opening a movie and calling you on Christmas morning to like yell at you about the, the grosses and what you're going to do. They didn't care about invading someone's. They didn't feel a sense of um, duty to the, of care to the people. No, they we're know, they, they we're a family. Them. They never said that. Oh, we're a family. By the way, just, so, you know, it's, it wasn't exclusive to them. You know, that was around the time that Jeffrey Katzenberg said, if you, if you don't come in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday. That's right. You know, and that's, just and a, that's a test, but that's like, that's work ethic. That's how you're gonna, you know, um, that's how you choose to establish the culture of your business. I decided that that for me wasn't necessary and that you could still be hard charging and, and create a culture where people work really hard, but also, um, treat them really well with respect and with dignity and, uh, you know, that, that and balance. That's, that's, and work, that's work for me, but like, you know, you know, we, we don't during COVID. I told my team, listen, I get it. I understand why people want to um, work remotely. I understand that there's a lot that, that can be gained from that. And it's, there, there are real benefits and we shouldn't ignore them and we should improve our company and take the lessons from that. That said, I got trained in person and I don't believe that the next generation coming up is going to be able to, um, benefit the way we did unless we train them in person and we're trying to push our industry to be more diverse. We have to show up and train people and we do that in person. That's how the trade, the craft is passed down. And I'm doing that in the office. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. But this is my band. This is the music that we play and you should go work somewhere else then. Now we don't come in, we don't have a five day week in person mandated um, uh, 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 policy at our company. We're m- much more flexible than that, but we're all in a, we're all at our posts in the office often because we think it's important. So I, I charge hard, but I also say, oh, you just had a baby? Well, don't, what are you doing? Don't call us. Don't come in. You're not sick. We say, you're sick home. We send you soup. You know, we, and, and we say to people, take your breaks. We're going to be really busy and at times you can't. So make sure to take them when you can. Um, and so I, I, you don't have to be like that, but yeah, Miramax was a very, very hard charging environment and they didn't care about, uh, how they were, how, 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 how their, their staff was treated. And, but as a, as a result though, there was that, uh, trickle down that you see at agencies still a little bit, which is the, the tough, the, I, I don't know what to call it, but, uh, 
when young people enter this business, they observe these behaviors, right? They look to their heroes or they look to their bosses and they say, well, I want to one day, I aspire to be this person. What I want success take? like they have success. What does it take? And there is that branching moment where, and you see it, you see people who are your friends or who are kind of normal, you know, rounded people and they go, oh, no, no, no. To be as successful as my ambition, you know, hungers for, I need to be a little crueler. I need to be a little bit more uh, Machiavellian, a little bit more tough. Like, is that necessary? I mean, you're kind of saying no. I'm but, saying no. I'm emphatically saying no, but... Um, but it's an easy like pitfall for a young person to fall into. Like, hey, I guess cruelty is what it takes to like make it all the way. Yeah, when people get desperate, you know, when the fucking Nazis fucking, you know, force everybody into a ghetto and wall it all off. Like, yeah, there are some people that go, you know what? I'm going to fucking collaborate to get my family some fucking extra soup because it's what's going to let us live another day. And it's yeah. really easy in our beautiful, comfortable, out of danger settings, you know, that we're in today to say, well, those guys are bad guys and they're bags of shit. But honestly, I don't know. I don't think you can know whether you're one of those people until you find yourself in those circumstances. And it takes a lot. I remember um, talking to my buddy Patrick about this. There was some situation. I'm, I'm, I'm like a uh, big believer in like, you keep your word, you honor your commitments. And like a, one of the measures of a man is, honoring your commitments when it's no longer profitable to do so. The facts on the ground have shifted and that had happened to me and it was now going to cost, I don't remember, but it was like, it was going to cost seven figures to kind of do the right thing. And I could get away with not doing the right thing and keep that money. And I was talking to him about it and it was obvious that I was going to do the right thing, but it's like kind of like just grump, you know, bitching about it sucked to lose that money. And he said, yeah, integrity is really expensive, but what would you rather have? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a yeah. solid quote. Yeah. So, you know, you know, I know and I, and I, uh, a private equity group that owned our company, uh, I learned uh, from Barry Volpert at Crestview Partners, who, who gave me some a bunch of good advice. But one thing he said was, it's our job as stewards of a business to make a an un, to make a unsentimental appraisal of what needs to be done, and um, but then it's our job to implement it with the highest degree of compassion possible. So, like, yeah, man, it might be that you need to fire people. Uh, it might be that you've staffed up to a level of volume that is no longer at your shop, and you're gonna the you're gonna go out of business, and everybody's gonna lose their job if you don't right-size your staff. Um, understanding that that has a massive impact on human beings who provide for their families um, and implementing that in, in the most compassionate way, you know, I think it, it is, is, is critical. So you, you do have to make tough calls. I don't mean to say that you don't, you, you can just walk around singing Kumbaya and being real, you know, and being like a pushover and a sweetheart. Like, no, you got to outwork everybody um, and you sometimes have to make really, really tough calls, um, but you can implement them in a really, really humane way. And that can cost money, uh, that can cost extra hours and, and include extra risk. And I think all those things are worth doing um, in service of the human beings that, uh, that populate our business. And I think it's a good long-term winning strategy, by the way. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, going along with what I said earlier, you, you, you're sitting at the, at the, um, you know, uh, the table, you're, you have a place at the table and are you like, are you modeling yourself on the people around you, the mentors that you have, you know, you go from Miramax to catalyst. Now this is a classic thing that happens in all business, right? You started out as an, an intern and then into assistant at Miramax, right? So that's great. They elevate you. It seems like a company that uh, admires work ethic, admires uh, stick-to-itiveness. People notice that. But then at a certain point, there's a ceiling and you're still the kid with the shine box, right? You, 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 there's a moment when you feel like, wait a second, I'm, I'm not going any further than I am at this place, right? I made them a division. I've made them some hits, but I'm not 
they're still kind of treating me like the little pisser that they're doing a favor for. Wait a second, right? So you have to leave. You just have to go. Maybe you'll come back later. Maybe you won't. So you find this opportunity. And by the way, you know, Catalyst at that time, Ashton Kutcher, I mean, he was, uh, he was one of the few guys that, that made that that leap into producing pretty goddamn successfully, right? I mean, he was, he was, he doing- was, he was huge. I mean, the TMZ of the time, he was in the news constantly. Punked was a huge hit for MTV. On the back of that, he now had a production company. We had other shows sold. My mandate was get us into the scripted business, get us into the broadcast business. Um, okay. He, he was, he was really right. And how did, how did you, like, how did that opportunity, I mean, look, you, you, you could There's say. A I want to tell you about it. There's a lesson. Uh, I was having success. I was sort of like vastly underpaid at Miramax. My deal was up. This was the beginning of the Disney divorce and people were getting laid off. And I thought, you know, I should leave because um, there are people here that really need this job and want it. And I'm ready to do something else. And I remember they were, they wanted to make me a new deal. And I said, well, I think our sense of what I'm worth is so different that uh, we won't be able to make a deal. And I'm, and they said, well, just tell us what you think you should be making. And I said, well, if I do that, I think you're going to laugh in my face. It's going to hurt my feelings. And they're like, no, no, just tell us, just tell us. And so I did. And they laughed in my face. And I, like, yeah. <laughs> um, I went, um, I called my best relationship at each agency to say, Hey, I'm looking for a job. And I had put no effort into making agency relationships. I had thought when I got to Hall and when I got to LA, these flaky people would say, Oh, this is my best friend. And I'd say, like, Oh yeah, I'd be like, Would you go to like grade school together? Like, you know, you go you grow up and go sing summer camp. And they'd be like, No, we met two months ago. And I'd think, like, who are these weirdos that use that term? Like, I have real best friends. And I thought, I'm never gonna be one of those people. I'm gonna make real meaningful relationships with a few people, and those will take me further than these like flaky half relationships. And I was wrong. Oh, you mean uh, show friends? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, but I was wrong. There, there's such a thing as nurturing acquaintances and friendships and relationships and, and, and developing a network of those. And, um, and so uh, when I called those agencies, none of them had a job interview for me, except for one guy at one agency, Greg Hodis at Endeavor. And I had hired a bunch of his clients as the writers on Wasteland when I first got out here. So no, lo and behold, it's the guy who's, you know, I put money in his pocket. The famous, and he had great yeah. clients. Um, and he got me an interview with, uh, with Ashton and Ashton's partner, Jason Goldberg. And thank God I got that job. I was excited to work with young guys. I had been working with older men uh, at Miramax, older white men. And, uh, um, and, the idea of working with people closer to my age who felt really exciting, guys who were a little hipper. I, the culture at Miramax was so intense and not nice from the top that I had this sense that there would always be people trying to take credit for my work above me. And I would never be able to be appreciated for it. And once, I won't bore you with the story, I had tried to tell Harvey what I had actually done and it just totally blew up in my face. And they were like, you're just trying to get credit. And, and, and I was like, well, I'll never, say what I did again. I'll just silently do my work and let the work for it speak for itself. And it will be more powerful later when people figure out what I was doing. And I found that to be true. So concludes our part one with Eli Holzman. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us at How I Got Greenlit on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And email us, please, at How I Got Greenlit at gmail.com you can also get this episode that you're listening to and all other episodes at howigotgreenlit.com thanks so much for listening to how i got greenlit i'm ryan gibson next week we'll do part two of our conversation with eli holtzman where he brings his b-side the 1992 film the player directed by robert alt thanks everybody for listening see you next week Next Chapter Podcasts.